Hey, good morning, Steve, or afternoon where you are. Good morning, Shane. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks for joining. Um, I wanted to have you on because I discovered your podcast uh, a couple months ago, and I was blown away by all of the different guests that you've had and the depths of the conversations. Some of the people I was familiar with, like Ian Banker or Ian Baker, Mado Moore, and some of these people that I really look up to as far as their understanding of meditation, the history. And I found the conversations to just be so enlightening and entertaining, even just some of their stories and backgrounds. So as I started to learn more about you, I, I just wanted to reach out and see if we could have a conversation because I think that you've talked to so many different guests um, spanning so many different traditions. And a lot of the traditions are kind of esoteric. And I think people, they're naturally interested in them, such as Tibetan Buddhism or Taoism and all of these things. But they're so complex. They're so, again, esoteric that I think it scares people away from ever really getting down to the foundation of what's being taught there. What, what's the takeaway? So that's what I would like to discuss today. Just kind of what you've learned over all of these years what you've learned from your guests, what are the powerful, you know, the golden thread of practices that, that you've really found for yourself to be helpful. But with that being said, I'd love to start by just hearing your background. How did you get into all of this? How did you kind of fall into this life that you're in now? Sure. Well, Shane, thank you very much for the kind words about the podcast. That's the Guru Viking podcast. And yeah, you're right. Those guests, my goodness, I'm lucky enough to talk to some of these incredibly smart guests, very advanced, some of them great scholars, great practitioners. And uh, the good thing about asking the questions is that uh, <laughs> I don't have to have the answers. <laughs> so, you know, it's uh, sometimes quite intimidating, actually, to speak to some of those uh, people. Some of them, you know, I, many of my guests I greatly admire, but certainly I admire their accomplishment and their scholarship and, and so on, and their, their sheer IQ power. I know. They are scary smart. Some of them are scary smart. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, some of them, uh, yeah, anyway. So, but about regarding my background, how was I, did I get interested in that sort of thing? Well, actually, from a young age, uh, I um, was inter became interested in these sorts of things. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I usually say that at the age of five, I was an altar boy, an altar boy in the Catholic religion. Mm -hmm. I came from. I come from a little island. Grew up on a little island called the Shetland Islands, which is quite far north of Scotland, between Scotland and Norway. Mm -hmm. And there, I was. So it's a little island community. And there, I was one of the altar boys in the Catholic Church. But I didn't get much of the doctrine, much of the uh, rules and regulations, and the sort of cosmology, if you like, I suppose, directly at least, uh, from the of the Catholic Church. Uh, my mother wouldn't let us go to my brother and I Sunday school or the catechism where they all the children sort of file off and some volunteer from the church teaches them, you know, the doctrine of the religion and so on. So I didn't get any of that. Um, I, I got what my mother would used to say, uh, a private faith. Mm. Or uh, uh, so we, the mass was seen as a kind of a place to go for a quiet or contemplative. Uh, ritual in a certain sense. 
And uh, it wasn't really to do with getting together with people who believe the same thing you did to celebrate mutual understanding of certain commonly held truth, for example. Mm -hmm. There wasn't much of that. And so, and actually the priest was a Jesuit priest uh, called Father Hayes. And he was also quite like that, very contemplative uh, mm. guy, very simple. And he, the way he taught the ritual of the mass to me as an altar boy, because, you know, an altar boy, for those of you who don't know, you basically help the priest with the predetermined ritual of the mass. The mass is kind of like an elaborate uh, ritual. And you've got to pick up candles at a certain time and move them to a place or ring a bell at a certain time or bring a cup or, you know, wipe this and so on. It's sort of like a choreographed thing, ritual. And the way he taught me, he didn't really explain it to me. He just would use his body and use the gestures. And actually, I recently, um, uh, my mother sent me a, uh, one of those home videos, you know. Mm. Uh, she had them digitized. And it, there is actually a video of one of my early masses. And this, uh, you know, I'm rushing around tr trying to, you know, reach ahead and trying to get, and uh, the priest just slows me down, moving very slow and so on. Anyway, maybe I'm laboring this point. But the point is that, so there was this tremendous sense of participation in a ritual of the mind-body mm. uh, participation, uh, the moving, you know, you get dressed in this certain stuff, you carry certain things, the body's involved, mm. and there's long periods of, of silence, uh, liturgy, which is the same stuff you just, you say every, every time, um, you know, the Apostles' Creed and so on and so forth. Mm. And it's very actually contemplative. And I had many uh, contemplative, if you want, transcendent experiences there. But somehow without the uh, doctrinal uh, restriction and, the, you know, that so many people uh, report, having grown up in a Catholic or a Christian environment, for instance, I hear that very often with my guests, very many of my guests, including some of the ones you've mentioned, you know, they had some sort of a Christian upbringing, right. they had religious proclivities, but they didn't like the doctrinal, you know, or the, uh, they didn't like the sort of oppressive institutional aspect of religion. Sure. Uh, that, that, and so they... They uh, moved then from, say, their Christian religion or whatever it might have been uh, into, into Buddhism and so on and so forth. It's, it's an extremely common story. Mm -hmm. Anyway, at that same time, I uh, be began uh, martial arts also at the age of five. And this was a very traditional uh, karate school and uh, quite uh, rigorous and strict and so on. And we meditated in that class also. So it had a kind of a Zen-y, Bushido-y kind of uh, vibe to it. Uh, lots of standing in one place for extended periods of time with your arm out in a punch, uh, you know, shaking and this sort of thing, you know, probably only for a few minutes, but when you're five or six, it seems like you're there, you know, for hours. Oh, right, and you have to <laughs> so, learn how to relax in the tension of that, yeah. Exactly. You know about that. You did martial arts too. Well, I, I'm fam I do a little bit of uh, Qigong. So holding the positions for extended periods of time, it, if you fight it, you just make it worse. And so you have to find a place within yourself to relax so deeply that you it, the tension falls away. Yeah, that's, that's very true. And those sorts of standing postures in Qigong, I think that's a famous, famous... Uh, example as you as you as you say of that principle you know right. how can these people they don't look so strong sometimes you see a really good qigong you know people and they you know stick your arm out and already 
just now my shoulders, I mean, not really, I'm just joking, but yeah. the shoulders start, you know, aching and so on. But some of these, sometimes are quite old. They can stand there for multiple hours. I mean, four hours at a stretch. I've seen that. Yep. And, um, uh, and it's, it's not because they're strong exactly, not, not in the strength that we'd, we'd, we'd immediately think, but it's because they're very, very relaxed, tremendous efficiency. And of course, the Qigong people also then posit that they're actually sustained by the, the flow and the power of their qi or the internal pressure of the fluids mm-hmm. that are moved through certain means. I don't know, uh, you know, I don't know about that, but certainly the, the relaxation seems crucial. Anyway, so th- there was that too, and I loved it. I totally got into the karate thing and uh, martial arts in general and that whole ethos, mm. meditation and these sorts of things. So, And I didn't see a conflict particularly between all of those uh, those things. Plus, living in nature and so on in that little island, I think, helped. So, you know, that was that. And in my teens, I was, uh, you know, to give you now a very quick, now I spent so long at the beginning, um, I was apprenticed to a Christian mystic who was an uh, author, a contemplative uh, writer who had come to the island for a period of time to finish some books. And I was apprenticed to him explicitly for two, three years, including spending, you know, a great deal of time with him doing all kinds of weird and wonderful uh Celtic Christianity sorts of uh, things. Wow! You know, walking around, walking up and down hills, tracing boundaries for sacred reasons, and uh, doing the very strange sorts of things. Anyway, and then from there, I did many, you know, different sorts of yoga. I've meditated a great deal in my life. I mean, a lot, probably more than I should, but everyone needs to have a hobby. And I've done some qigong and uh, all that kind of stuff. So that's, uh, I suppose, yeah. I'm 35 now. As we speak, so I've done lots of these sorts of things since since that time. Right, right. And now, what does your practice look like? What what does your day look like with with all these? I mean, obviously, you've you've learned so many different traditions and practices. Yeah, well, I suppose you know one of the teachers I've had for one of my main teachers over the last. 10 plus years, has been a meditation teacher called Shinzen Young. Mm-hmm. He's an American meditation teacher. In fact, I've interviewed him on my podcast a number of occasions. American meditation teacher. He's in his 70s now. Interesting guy. He was ordained as a Shingon monk mm-hmm. uh, in the 70s. He went to Japan and, uh, well, how to start with Shinzen? I mean, it's difficult to exactly <laughs> By the t- Well, in his teens, he learned Japanese to a fluent level became the valedictorian of the of the local Japanese evening school for Japanese students. You know, kind of like the shula, uh, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, the Japanese ethnic school, and uh, he learned Sanskrit as well, and some Chinese and so on, and um, eventually became uh, workable uh, classical Chinese. You know, Sanskrit, Pali, uh, Japanese. Uh, you know, ha- has quite a bit of Tibetan as well, as far as I, I believe. Mm-hmm. He went to Japan to pursue his PhD, um, which he was doing out of, I believe, University of Wisconsin. And he wanted to do it on Shingon, which is a Vajrayana or certain sort of esoteric sect, if we want to put it in more common language, of Buddhism that's in Japan. Most of most people who maybe most people don't think any of this, but a lot of people right. associate Vajrayana and esoteric sort of Buddhism with uh, Tibet. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's also uh, Late stage Vajrayana third turning style mm-hmm. Buddhism's elsewhere, and one of them is the Shingon 
uh, school. Uh, but, you know, it's esoteric and it's secret. And they said this stuff is for transformation, not for scholarship, not for, you know, studying. So he eventually, he thought, well, if you can't beat them, join them. Mm-hmm. He memorized their liturgy and in, in uh, you know, when he was there. And they eventually admitted him and he was a monk there for quite some time. Mm-hmm. And uh, basically as a sort of attempt to get what was going on in there so he could write his PhD about it. But somehow in that whole process, he changed from from that PhD academic uh, interest to mm-hmm. personal Transformation, I suppose. You know what 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 the uh, tech is there for, I guess. And he became interested in that. Anyway, but he then went on to study, of course, all the vipassana stuff. He has a lot of Zen, lots and lots of deep Zen background. Anyway, mm-hmm. that's Shinzen. But uh, he has this division between formal and informal practice, which I think can be quite helpful. Formal practice could be essentially when you're, you know, deliberately intending to do a practice with, say, most of your attention. So you sit down to meditate, or you you know you get you start to do your qigong, or you start to do you know whatever your practice might be. Mm-hmm. An informal practice, maybe you're doing something in the background, you know, as you're washing the dishes, you're maybe doing something, or you do little uh, micro hits when you've got a, a gap in your day, you know, you're waiting in line, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So we have informal and formal practice. And for me, I suppose my formal practice. So I do lots of little informal practice, of course, throughout the day. And you can't help but do that. Mm. When you've integrated lots of different things, you, you sort of end up, it's almost difficult to see when it's happening. But in terms of formal practice, I focus on uh, meditation, mm-hmm. I would say. So, of course, I do some meditation uh, each each day. That's, my, I suppose, my prim- the primary expression of my practice. But I, but I also do, of course, I work out. I do Qigong. I do yoga things as well. I can I kind of consider that in the category of brushing my teeth, if I'm honest. Right. The thing that's at the front of the grill, that's rather than the back of the grill. You know, the thing that's at the front and foremost in terms of what I'm working on is meditation practice. Yeah. I think the for most people they don't really understand fundamentally why they should have a practice, why meditating is important. I think there's there's a a book. Uh, a meditation book by a, a Buddhist teacher called Not for Happiness. And I've always loved that title because I think we go into meditation because we're trying to get out of this um, general uneasiness that we have as human beings. We're always like the, the Sanskrit word for suffering. Um, it, it has a, is a translation um, uh, as suffering. But I think a better translation for it is disease. Like there's a there's a subtle uneasiness that we always have throughout our lives, um, and it's because we're always shifting back and forth between aversion towards things we don't want, and then craving for things that we want to happen or, or things that we do want. And so there's always this unsettled feeling. And I think that understanding that meditation isn't about reaching some 24-7 blissed out state of mind. It's more about reaching an evenness and um, just a, a, a deep relaxation with no matter what happens. Because for me, a lot of times, I'm, I'm a regular person. I have a practice and everything, but I still get caught up in, you know, in my mind and, and wanting things to happen. And um, it's, for me, it's been a practice of constantly coming back to that openness 
of accepting whatever reality gives me. And it's difficult sometimes. It's very difficult. And what I have to do is just practice being very raw, very open and honest and vulnerable with whatever's happening. Um, and that's the only, only control that I can really have. And I think that practice of meditation of being just in this spacious openness to reality is to, for me has been the real key and been the eye opener because before, whenever I was practicing, I would sit there for hours and I would be really diligent about it. And really like almost with a Spartan attitude that I'm going to reach this state of enlightenment or, or, or bliss that will kind of carry me away from the uneasiness, the, uh, the dissatisfaction that happens with life. Steve, are you there? Oh, we lost you for a second. Oh, uh, sorry about that. I, I, the last thing I heard was um, you were meditating with a Spartan attitude and you're going to reach it within, uh, you're trying to get the state of bliss. Right, right. And, and so I think a lot of people approach meditation with, with that attitude. Um, and so it's, it's kind of, it's adding an extra stress on the life instead of, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, this is just how I've learned to understand my practice is it's more of a practice of letting go and just being open to reality as it presents itself constantly because it's constantly changing. And we have to realize that there's nothing that we can hold on to. There's a, there's a quote that Chogyam Trungpa once said that I love that awakening is realizing that you're falling through the sky. Nothing to hold on to, no parachute. But it's realizing that there's also no ground. And I always thought that that was such a beautiful explanation of it because it's scary. But at the same time, it's freeing once you really kind of open yourself up to it. So maybe you could talk about that a little bit about how, how you have, um, how your practices kind of change the way you experience life. Hmm. Yeah, that's very interesting. Of course, we were talking before, uh, a little bit before we went on air, about some of your your background mm -hmm. in meditation and some of the teachers you've had. And uh, uh, would would you say that? Mm, but pr probably you've talked about that somewhere else. We don't want to necessarily bring that in, or can we bring that in? Oh, we can bring anything in. I don't mind. Okay, good. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe could you contextualize a little bit what you're saying in terms of that view? Because, of course, as I know you're well aware, there are different ways of uh, right different ways of describing this this uh, sort of endeavor. And you're you're talking from a quite a specific one. I'm wondering if you could maybe contextualize. That. Sure. I, I realize that it is kind of specific, and I think maybe I've just become so used to that uh, viewpoint in all traditions that I assume it's all the same. So the practice that I have been involved in for the past 10 years is called Dzogchen, which is in Tibetan Buddhism. Uh, another translation for it is called Ati Yoga, A-T-I. And in that tradition, it's considered to be the pinnacle of Buddhist teachings. And, it, and by pinnacle, it really is an, another way of saying the most foundational part of those teachings. It's, it's reaching the goal from the very beginning and taking that goal as the path itself. So 
that goal is to essentially be in this recognition of our natural mind that's spacious and open and there's a knowing quality to it. There's a, there's a clarity part to, to that knowing and just recognizing that and resting in that. Uh, and it, the practice is not getting lost from that. So our minds naturally jump from one thing to another. You know, it's, it's amazing how I will be walking or driving. And for 15 minutes, I'm in a different world. I'm having conversations about this and that with different situ- people. And, and then I'll recognize I've been in a kind of daydream. I've been lost for so long. And most of my day is like that. But every now and then I'll, I'll snap back out of it and I'll come back into reality, into this very present moment and recognize that innate spacious awareness that is free from all of the discursive thinking and craving um, and attachments. And so extending that, that recognition and that resting quality in that over longer and longer periods has been my practice. So at, at a foundation, obviously I have other things that I do. I do breath work types of pranayamas and things like that, that kind of help calm down the mind that help to um, make that recognition, that quality stronger maybe. Um, but that's my tradition where kind of the, the, your foot hits the road, so to speak. Yeah, that's very interesting. And in your particular case, or in that Dzogchen tradition, from what I understand, sometimes there, uh, there's a moment of initially contacting that, or uh, Rigpa, I think it's called, or that, uh, that state you're talking about, or that quality. Yep. And then from there... And what's, uh, and what's Rigpa? People won't know what that is, probably. <laughs> well, you're the Dzogchenpa. Maybe you should... Uh, but my question was, maybe you could explain it in, in the answer. Yeah. My question was, uh, sometimes that's done by introduction to the nature of mind by pointing out instructions where the teacher will say, uh, lead you through a sort of pointing out this um, always already present sort of uh, quality and so on. So I'm wondering if that was the case for you. Did you have a moment of spontaneous contact, spontaneously contacting that uh, through, you know, you were practicing or walking in a forest or something like that, or did you receive the pointing out instructions? Right. Okay. So a little bit of background for people on what pointing out instructions are. Essentially, you you beat your head against the wall for years trying to figure out what this thing is that all these teachers are talking about. What is awakening? What is enlightenment? Um, and for me, I went to, I did Vipassana retreats for 10 days at a time. I would go out into the mountains and camp and just sit there, like I said, like a very Spartan attitude and try to ha- receive some realization. Finally, I found a teacher who was able to tell me, if you've been searching, you can relax. You can relax. This is it now. And I remember in that moment, I felt like he was talking directly to me. Um, my, my first teacher, his name is Kimpo Sonam. He, he teaches in LA. He's a Nyingma, the Nyingma tradition in, in Tibet. And I felt this huge burden come off of me. But then for the next year, I was waiting for these so-called pointing out instructions where I felt like he was going to just zap me with awakening. He was just, because 
in in this tradition they also call it an empowerment which is it the the language makes it seem like you're there's a transfer and there is a kind of there is a transfer of of mind of energy but it's also an understanding that is already in you naturally it's nothing that you have to look for outside or have to get to it's already right there in front of your face in fact I beat my head against the wall reading and studying these texts for so long because I wasn't getting it. And the problem wasn't that it wasn't too difficult. It was that it was too easy. And finally, I received these pointing out instructions and nothing really happened because I think I was waiting for something to happen so much that I, I was expecting fireworks. You know, all the pyrotechnics that you want to have of bliss and feeling like you're one with the universe and all these things. That's what I was wanting. I was craving. So my mind wasn't even relaxed in that moment. Um, but through my teachers and repetitively kind of engaging with them in a conversation about what it is I'm experiencing, is this it? Is this not it? I was able to finally slowly come to an understanding of of what this awakening is, of what the awakened mind naturally already is, um, and so that's that's how that process played out in a long, long way of saying so. Mm -hmm. Amazing, and you you asked me about that. Some people you, you said some people don't understand why they uh, should have a practice, or uh, I, I mean. I'm not sure if they should either, actually. Right. But I'm curious, and I think you know that. But yeah. so I'm curious in your case, what motivated the initial search at all? Because that sounds I, like you were extremely rigorously pursuing yeah. uh, meditation, uh, studying, and so on, and you were really uh, on that uh, trail for some reason. What was it? Do you think that uh, you, would have motivated you? And I think uh, I think it's the same story as a lot of people. May, maybe slightly different than yours because you you approached it at a very young age. You were kind of introduced to these contemplative traditions. For me, it was more of the kind of dark night of the soul. I went through a period where I just didn't know what I wanted to do with my life, who I was. I felt like I had kind of been living a lie to to myself about who I even really was and what I wanted. And so I went through a period where I just started searching and I didn't know what I was searching for. I would go to different, um, I had gone to a Shingon temple. I had gone to all these different places trying to just find somebody that could help snap me out of this um, kind of lost feeling. You know, I, I felt like a kind of an alien in the world. I, I no longer could just be a mundane person, just kind of sleepwalking through life. Uh, and that tension built up in me so much that it, it, it was like, I, I had no choice. I couldn't mm -hmm. even rest until I finally came to this until I found, until I felt like I found what I was looking for. And so that process took me about four years. Gosh. Yeah. Just jumping around and, I would talk to teachers and I would still feel like, well, this isn't it. I would go to Zen teachers and I would feel, ah, I, I, I don't think this is it. And, and finally, I found a teacher that was able to give me that peace of mind. Mm. Was it a, 
um, some an emotional state you were seeking to resolve, or was it uh, a conceptual uh, problem that you were attempting to resolve, or was it a, a search for meaning, it, a, search, it a, a search for direction, something yeah, like this? It was a search for meaning. It really was. I, I um, I've never had anybody ask me these questions, so now I now I have to actually like dig into what was going on. It was a combination of so much emotional um, lacking, so much just not knowing who I was. I, I felt like there was something deep within me that I needed to discover to really mm-hmm. offer something back to the world, to really kind of fulfill my life's potential. And I just, like I said, I had felt like I had been living a lie my whole life until I was about 28 years old. And it kind of what happened. Go on. It kind what of, happened at twenty eight. Um. Well, I was in a relationship that uh, with a woman that I loved very much, and it just kind of there was, for whatever reason, a lot of tension in it. But things just weren't working out. I had just graduated from college, and I had been in the military, and I had had all these plans for my life about who I was going to be. I wanted to be in the FBI and do all this type of stuff. And slowly all of that started to unravel. And I realized that that isn't where my life was going. And I started to question what I was even doing with my life because I felt like all of it had been a waste up to that point. Like I had, I had shed all of those past personalities completely and I was just like this, I felt like I was in open heart surgery. I was just completely open and raw. And I had no idea what my next step was and who I was. And that's kind of what started this digging. I, I felt like Neo in the Matrix. I would be on the computer at night just reading esoteric texts and kind of searching. There was a compass inside of me that was guiding me. It definitely wow. was. But for the longest time, it was... I couldn't figure out where it was orienting. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, that's remarkable. And what is the meaning or the mission statement? Uh, I hope you don't uh, mind me asking. I mean, we can we can change the subject. No, I just no, think it's, I don't it's really interesting. Yeah. Well, we were talking a little bit beforehand, and uh, what you said was so much more interesting <laughs> than uh, you know uh, than uh, anyway my story, but. Uh, well, I'm curious then if it was a, a search for meaning mm. that drove it, and now you feel you found that meaning, or you found that home, or you've resolved that search in some profound sense. Yeah. What is the mission statement now, or what's the orientation, or what's yeah, what's the meaning that you're uh, operating from? So, there's a there's a book called The War of Art. Uh, have you are you familiar with this? Yeah, isn't it Stephen Pressfield or something? Stephen Pressfield, yes. And yeah. he, he talks about, well, he talks about a lot of stuff that, and I recommend that book to everybody. It's like the main book that I keep to, to offer to people. Um, but he talks about the difference between the hero's journey and the artist's journey. So in the hero's journey, if people are familiar with Joseph Campbell's hero's journey, it's essentially the framework that every movie is kind of based around if you think about star wars with the jedi where in the beginning 
you're lost and then you find this teacher and you kind of have this realization that you have this innate capacity or power and then you you know you get, start giving back to the world with that gift now that newfound gift that's probably a poor way of describing the hero's journey but essentially Stephen Pressfield talks about you go through the hero's journey and that is very difficult and very trying and then you reach that but then you reach it and it's you're kind of like okay now what and that then you reach the next part of your life which is the artist's journey which is finding your own way to translate that new understanding of who you are into something that you can offer back to the world and to other people and to your relationships. Um, and so now that that's been my process now, how can I engage with people as honestly and most in the most authentic way as possible? How can I kind of be just, open to everything. Um, that's been my practice and, and doing things like this, like having a podcast, talking to other people and trying to share that message is become my process now. Yeah. Mm. I tried writing for a long time and it, it's difficult. Writing is very difficult. Yes. It's difficult to write about Dogchen, I think. Yes. Uh, it sort of cancels itself out sometimes. Right. In a way. But uh, that's very interesting indeed. Um, well, you asked me, you know, about practice and should be, you know, why people don't understand why they should have a practice and so on. And I don't, as I said, I don't necessarily think they should. Mm -hmm. I think, uh, like you said, a lot of people engage in let's just say meditation practices, take that as an example, for all kinds of reasons. Mm -hmm. So sometimes you see these, uh, you know, maybe see a group of people in a retreat meditating together, or maybe, you know, or just right now, probably around the world, there's people are meditating, you know, in their rooms or whatever, somewhere, somehow. Yeah. And um, uh, they're, they're doing different practices for different reasons. And even if they're in the same room with the same doing the same, ostensibly the same practice, they'll have very different reasons for doing it. Mm -hmm. For some, it is a search for meaning. Mm -hmm. It's a search for clarification of one's identity, mm -hmm. or it's a, it's a meaning-making exercise. Mm -hmm. For some, it's an identity, it demonstrates a certain identity to themselves. It, it's a statement of values or something like that. Sure. Uh, for others, it's a coping mechanism. Mm -hmm. um, for others, it's an acquisition, process of acquisition. Acquiring what? Well, Maybe mental power, the ability to concentrate, mm -hmm. maybe distance from emotion, mm -hmm. more control, more self-control, being less tugged by their emotion, for example. Others just don't, maybe can't, many, I think many people can't, can't articulate exactly why they do something like that. Um, I think there are reasons, but not, we can't always articulate our assumptions. Another one of my teachers uh, in the past, uh, Godfrey Devereaux, mm -hmm. said that our assumptions guide our practice. Mm -hmm. Um, even if they're unconscious. And then when I interviewed Godfrey, uh, he said, uh, uh, he corrected me and said, especially if they're unconscious. So, you know, we're, we're do what, what are we doing? What are people, the uh, interesting question is, why do the people who do it do it? Which is what I was asking you. Right. You know, I can understand why the people who don't do it don't do it. Right. Why on earth do the people who do do it do, do it? Yeah. That's interesting, I think. And, um, can they get that somewhere else? Why meditation? Mm -hmm. Why talk Jen? 
if it's meaning, why that meaning? Could any meaning have done it? Of course, Dogchen, as you say, may represent itself as the highest view. After all, it is called the great perfection, uh, the great perfection. But, you know, uh, that's what they say about Dogchen. And of course they would, because they're Dogchen people. If they thought it was right. the slightly not as good perfection, then they'd probably go and do the thing they thought was the best one. Exactly. That's true. So, I always laugh about yeah. that. <laughs> You know, we have the best prices in town, you know, or your money back. You know? Right. But um, uh, so uh, that's, I think, quite interesting. What does one get out of meditation? Mm-hmm. And then can you, could you get it somewhere else conceivably? I think this is sometimes we can see this in terms of jobs, mm-hmm. as in what you do to make money and, you know, your job like that, your occupation. You know, very often we have certain core values. Uh, and um, we can express them through jobs. So, I don't know, say a nurse, for instance. You know, a nurse perhaps once has certain core values, maybe to do with uh, maybe there's a social aspect. There's a sense of direct. I, I've in my teens for a, a period of about a year, I worked in an old people's home, an old people's home at the same time as I was with the Christian mystic, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, it was a home for the elderly. Sm- it's quite small, maybe only fifteen to sixteen residents there. Uh, maybe a little more. And of course, anyone who's worked in an old people's home knows you have to take care of many things. The residents have different capabilities. Some of them are, they're just there in the home and they can take care of everything else, but some of them are really quite incapacitated and you have to help them with all their um, requirements and all their bodily functions and everything and so on. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I actually found that to be one of the most satisfying, tangibly, viscerally satisfying jobs that I have done. Because there's an immediate sense of um, meaning or value in the work. Mm. If you help somebody eat or go to the toilet or wash or something like that, yeah. they you know they need you to do that. They can't do it themselves. Some of them couldn't do it themselves. Mm-hmm. And you know you can do it in such a way. I had the person who taught me, who mentored me in that role, was the, um, another uh, man, in, I think in his fifties or so. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he's, he, he, he was really emphasized respect, dignity, you know, mm-hmm. to help somebody in those sorts of very intimate processes with dignity and preserve their dignity while you can and uh, see it as a service. Yeah. And so anyway, the point is that there was a real tangible sense of satisfaction from that job um, because you could see it was helping somebody. Uh, so you might think, well, gosh, maybe I should become a, a carer for old people. Maybe that's the perfect job for me. Mm-hmm. Well, m- maybe, maybe not. But there's actually a lot of things that one can do in one's life. I've talked about myself. There's a lot of things I can do that it, that express those same core values, maybe not quite always so directly. Mm-hmm. And similarly, in, in meditation practice, uh, you know, there's a lot of, if I, I, I meditate for certain reasons, and I could probably get a lot of that from other practices, at least on the meaning level. Right, and re- on the, in the religious sense, I interview many guests. Many of them are representatives of religious traditions, and I do sometimes ask them about this. And I sometimes think that I think often you could switch the person into a different religious context, mm-hmm. and it, it, a few words would change, but nothing much else. Nothing much else. That's interesting. The, the different paths are quite. I think on a certain level, there's an interchangeability in the same way that one's job can be interchangeable. Some people they lose their job, they lose their whole identity. Right. What am I going to do now? I, I can't do that job. Well, the, one of the ways to navigate that is to attempt to say, well, what did I get out of that job? Or what skills or traits did I bring to that job? Is there another way in which that can be expressed in some other role, some other job mm-hmm. that 
it's the same, basically the same job on the meaning level, but it's very different occupation. And I think that's also true. So I always think it's very important for any practitioner to question what, why they're doing it and not to assume that just because they, they, they think it's the great, <laughs> the, the great perfection, you know, yeah. that there aren't, you know, that it, I suppose, uh, not to assume in a certain sense that, Oh, just a question, I would say. Yeah, just a question. But uh, why do people, why should people uh, do it? I don't know if they should. Um, some people are attracted to it for all kinds of reasons, I would say. Mm-hmm. Right, right. What is your kind of daily process now? What is your creative process? Because we talked about the hero's journey and the artist's journey, and I feel like you're in a similar situation, similar boat, no pun intended, since you're in, literally in a houseboat. But I'm literally in a boat, yeah. <laughs> um, in case people are watching on video, he, he this is his houseboat. It's really rad looking. Um, but yeah, what what does your day look like now? What what is your process? Because you have a podcast. I I believe you also do some teachings and and traveling for all of that kind of stuff as well. So you're really kind of on the artist journey as well now. So what does that look like for you? Yeah, in terms of. Uh, how I divide my time, you mean? How, how you divide your time and what's inspiring you. What, what, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I think at the core level, mm-hmm. uh, it's to do with, not too different to what you described, actually. <laughs> yeah. Not too different. I can certainly relate to a lot of what you said when you were talking about your, your journey and the place from which you operate now. Mm-hmm. I think that's really interesting. I'm resisting asking more questions about that because I know that it's not, it's, uh, you're supposed to be interviewing me. So I don't want to turn the thing around, but, you know, we but can always I, do, we can always do a round two. <laughs> okay. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I think, um, during, during the, the, during a typical day, yeah, of course I'll do meditation and things like that. Mm-hmm. And I uh, maybe do some work on podcasts. Uh, I pursue a lot of intellectual interests, you know, studying, uh, you know, uh, of all different sorts. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I, I do teach uh, meditation. Um, I teach, I have a co, uh, co-teacher, business partner, Michaela Bowen, mm-hmm. who's a well, uh, well-respected uh, counselor and uh, also a teacher in the, in the realm of relationships and also spirituality. You know, she's operating also from that kind of a lens. So we, we before the pandemic, uh, we're traveling constantly all around the, all around the world. Now it's all on Zoom, of course. Mm-hmm. I work a lot in embodiment, these sorts of fields. I have a, pri- a private client, a private client practice. Tell, tell me about uh, that. I, I love discussing embodiment. A, a, a previous guest I had on was Corey Hess, who also has an embodiment practice, and he trained in a Rinzai monastery for ten years, kind of developing wow. all of that. As you know, it, Rinzai Zen is a very yogic tradition of Zen in which the body is really a, a large focus, kind of it building up this internal language, so to speak. So w- w- what is your embodiment practice now? What, what, and maybe explain what embodiment even is, because that can be defined several ways. Oh, yeah, it certainly can. And yeah, embodiment is one of those words that can correctly mean different things in different contexts. Right. Um, you know, sometimes I say you can table a motion at a meeting, or you can put your coffee on the table. Right. Both uses of the word table are correct, yeah. but they're different. And so it's important to clear, clarify the definitions 
I totally agree with you on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I suppose um, uh, what you know w- when I think of the word embodiment, I think of feeling the sensations um, that the body's generating mm-hmm. fundamentally. Feeling that that's to me the embodiment stage or step, if you like. Mm-hmm. Feeling the sensations that the body is uh, generating. Yeah, it's not an optimizing of those sensations. Yeah. It's not an optimizing of a cer- or a sort of aspirational state experience, for example, um, such as feeling good or feeling uh, together or feeling whole mm-hmm. or feeling uh, you know connected or something like that. I think sometimes you don't you feel disconnected. That's what the feeling is. So embodiment would be feeling that. Um, sometimes you feel uh, you know ungrounded or something like that. That's a feeling, and you can feel that. But that's not to say that one shouldn't uh, attempt to feel good or attempt to feel better or attempt to reach an aspirational state experience such as feeling connected or so on. In fact, I think we can't help but do that. It seems to be the momentum of the organism to optimize its conditions. I just see that as a sort of second step. Mm. And if we collapse the contact step with the, um, if you like, improvement step, mm-hmm. then we can lose out on so, some valuable information. Very often, I think we, we collapse or we uh, conflate or mix the feeling and then the response together. And uh, th- there's all sorts of, maybe uh, we can talk about that if you're interested, but there's all sorts of reasons why that's maybe not so smart. Um, anyway, so that's what embodiment is to me anyway, feeling the sensations that reveal the presence of the body, essentially feeling the sensations, yeah. Maybe I could take it on a slight tangent because one of the things that I think about with embodiment as kind of a process to ease the tension in, in one's life, it, uh, the book, uh, The Body Keeps the Score, always comes to mind. Have, are you familiar with this book? So... Yeah, Bessel van der Kolk. Yeah, and I just love the title more than anything because I feel like it really underscores something that uh, isn't well understood, and that's that I was in the military, and I have a lot of friends that are veterans that went through some very traumatic things, and I think understanding that everybody goes through trauma in this life and that that trauma... gets embedded in the body. And if we haven't developed the internal language to unwind that trauma and kind of just let it release on its own accord, it just stays in there. And then maybe we have, then it ends up being a recurring theme in our life. Anxiety uh, develops. I used to have awful panic attacks when I got out of the military and they came out of nowhere. And I had to kind of, learn how to really accept what the feeling was in my body and just be present with that feeling, that tension in my chest, not trying to get it to go away and just rest with it and just be in my body and feel my body. And in that process, it got untangled and for lack of a better terms, healed itself. So when I think of embodiment, not only do I think of it from a meditation standpoint of kind of being in your body, you know, you, 
we are bodies and we, to be present, we need to be in the body, not in our mind or somewhere else, but also embodiment as a process to kind of heal ourselves from the things that have happened in our lives and our childhood that have been shoved to the subconscious that have been kind of embedded down into our DNA, so to speak. Yeah, that's very interesting. I think trauma of, of various types is certainly a barrier to embodiment, as, as uh, Michaela would say, mm-hmm. my co-teacher, I mean, mm-hmm. she talks about barriers to embodiment. Trauma is a barrier to embodiment. Why don't people feel? What stops them from feeling? Well, because it hurts. <laughs> yeah. Because it hurts. And uh, one of the responses or means of operating uh, it, when it hurts is to, um, you know, to disconnect from that hurt somehow. That's actually a sensible response, mm-hmm. a necessary sometimes, I think, wise mechanism of the, of the body mm-hmm. and the mind to do that. But the problem can come and this isn't news to you or I'm sure any of the listeners, but the problem can come when we get stuck in a certain sense mm. in that disconnected um, that disconnected sense, right. state. And then we are in a certain sense, um, the threat has passed. Mm. And the strategy that allowed us to, or our best strategy to allow us to navigate that difficult situation is you know, still in operation. We're stuck in a certain sense. Mm. And so... Uh, it's very difficult to um, sometimes lower that uh, and begin to reconnect. And that's, I think, the province of trauma therapy, um, indeed, is the best place for that. Trauma therapy modalities, you know, people like Bethel van der Kolk or Peter Levine, as you point out, mm-hmm. um, Grimberg Method and so on. Um, I know that people also, some people are successful in navigating that through meditation, mm. uh, but uh, not all. And sometimes what happens with people in meditation is to plunge, they, they're plunged through that liminal barrier into the, the pain that's underneath and are, um, you know, have difficulties navigating it, I think. So I'm not sure if meditation is always, depends on the meditation, of course. I'm not sure if meditation is always uh, necessarily a reliable cure-all. And in fact, meditation can be used to, uh, further entrench the bypass to actually reach states of you know non-duality or transpersonal states or states of emptiness or union or whatever's the case that in a certain sense get you around the pesky the pesky pain and irritation and uh, dirtiness and dustiness of life right right (laughs) and so anyway i think uh yeah in a certain sense the reason i like to separate embodiment from um uh, from processes such as trauma resolution. Mm. Uh, we, I mean, there are, of course, very linked, absolutely. But the reason I like to separate it, at least conceptually, is that um, if we mistake the idea that embodiment is somehow uh, a pleasant thing, or that embodiment, when it's going well, is somehow connected, or a sense of connection, or a sense of peace, or a sense of wholeness, or a sense of you know being in control, and so on, then when we feel something that isn't that, then, then, then that must not be embodiment. But as you correctly point out, if someone has pain or discomfort or even any kind of turbulence inside, I mean, who doesn't have that from time to time? You don't even need trauma for that. No. But then you might think, oh, this isn't embodiment. How do I get back to embodiment? Well, actually, you may be very embodied at that moment if we define embodiment as feeling the sensations that reveal the presence of the body. Mm-hmm. So if we reject negative states as somehow wrong or incorrect, 
um, then I think that's not quite uh, a good way of relating to them. Now, that being said, if you feel disturbed, it's natural to want to, f- to return to a feeling of peace, or, you know, get to a feeling of peace. If you feel upset, you want to become not upset anymore. If there's a pain, you want to relieve the pain, of course. We don't have to deny that, pretend that we don't, that, that that's not natural. Then I think that, I think of that as a sort of second step. There's no, sometimes I say there's no informed consent on intimacy of any sort, including intimacy with the sensations of the body. It's like Forrest Gump. You don't know what you're going to get, you know, when you open that box of chocolates. You know? <laughs> sometimes it's going to feel nice. Sometimes it's not going to feel nice. Mm-hmm. There's no informed consent. It's the same in relationships. Really, intimacy in relationships is quite unpredictable. You never really know what you're going to get um, in, in relationship of any kind, including relationship with the body. So uh, anyway, so that's, I suppose you're asking about embodiment. That's part of how I, how I see it. Mm-hmm. And, and you you did bring up relationships. How do you feel that embodiment um, helps with our relationships with others? How do like I, one of my favorite topics is relating um, and how to relate with others, how to be the room, so to speak, and kind of meet others right where they're at, you know, and see them who they really are because. A lot of the times when we're relating with other people, we subconsciously have our own agenda. We're subconsciously trying to manipulate situations. Uh, we, we're strategizing. We want people to see us a certain way. We have a certain idea of what we want them to see us as. And we also project other things onto other people. So this is kind of another thing that I think of in in embodiment is just collapsing back down to just being in the body and being completely vulnerable and honest with people and being raw. And so maybe you could talk about that, how embodiment kind of with relationships, how that can help develop Mm -hmm. things. And yeah. Sure. I don't, necessarily think of embodiment as sufficient uh, or um, what do I mean by that? Well, sometimes I, I like to think of bringing the body to the board of advisors, mm-hmm. you know, the sensations of the body say, to the board of advisors. Sometimes I imagine like a, you know, King Arthur's round table inside yeah. with lots of uh, different uh, aspects, you know, I don't know, maybe your childhood conditioning, your cultural conditioning, maybe your memories, uh, maybe your, uh, I don't know, you know, your biochemical uh, hormonal mood makeup or something, you know, is coming in there. Mm-hmm. And then you know, all these are sort of interacting in a certain sense. And we can bring the body to the board of advisors when we are able to more dependably contact it. And sometimes what can happen to people when they begin to contact more of the sensations of the body, especially if they haven't felt, haven't had that contact much, or to a lesser degree, is there can be a, a little bit a dictatorship of the body. There can be a period of time where the body takes, in a certain sense, jumps into the middle of the table and just takes over. It's like, now, finally, I have a place at the table. I'm going to take over. You know? right. And, uh, uh, you know, it's, you hear people say things like, I don't do it unless it's a full body yes, and things like that. Yeah. I think it's important to be able to override the body. That's very important. For example, sometimes one, the body wants to sleep a little bit longer in bed. Mm-hmm. But for the sake of other, the other, the bigger picture or other other aspects, 
you get out of bed, you force the body to get out of bed. Right. Sometimes a uh, mother may be in the middle of the night, does, you know, is tired, does not really uh, want to uh, get up and so on, but she does. Or is the case, or sometimes you, you need to make a deadline or you need to do certain kind of work or you want to, you have to do a certain kind of task and you don't feel like it, but you do it anyway. So, but at least you can ideally feel the objection, if you like, or feel the resistance right. in the body. So I sometimes think, you know, there's sort of uh, relating uh, methods that emphasize a kind of zero filter communicating of one's feelings and reactions. Um, I sometimes think a problem with those is it's a good training mechanism, I think, to actually contact what's going on. So, so it's a good exercise to contact what's going on in the body and to actually get in touch with what you actually think and feel, which a lot of us, when we socialize or relate, as, as you say, yeah. uh, you know, we have difficulty contacting that. And so maybe you agree to things and you go along with things and then you, you walk away and half an hour later or maybe 10 years later, you realize, hang on a minute, I didn't actually want to do that. Right, you know? right, yeah. <laughs> but um, so I think it's a good training mechanism, um, but I don't think it's a good strategy for general relating. I think it's a poor strategy okay. uh, for general relating and be can be quite tyrannical, I think, mm. when uh, relating in that way. In terms of a workshop context, it's very exciting because you get a bunch of people together and they start to, to, to um, you know, for those who don't know, there are, there are methods of relating. They do this. They get people together and everyone just says what they feel and says what they think, kind of unfiltered and unvarnished. And of course, you know, anyone who's watched their mind knows that all kinds of weird and wonderful things come, uh, go in there and then a lot of weird and wonderful things come out. And there's this tremendous sense of excitement. There's an adrenaline rush. There's a thrill. And there's this, if you want, almost... Um, it can be almost an ecstatic experience, almost, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Cathartic mm. uh, kind, of, kind of experience. Sometimes a mutual, a kind of mutual inflicting of wounds and a, you, you're forced open, you're held open by the facilitator yeah. and everyone's punching each other and so on uh, with their words. And uh, of course, it's very exciting and thrilling. And one gets the sense that one's done good work because you're tired at the end of the day. You've yeah. experienced a range of emotions and you, know, you feel kind of lightheaded and excited and so on. So, but I think as a training exercise, that stream of consciousness thing, interesting. Mm. As, a, as a sort of philosophy of relating, I think very poor. Um, it's a little, I think, irresponsible. <laughs> and also un unbalanced to the rest, of, the rest of one's being. I do want to make a point that when I say that, I, I'm not suggesting that people say the first thing that comes to their mind, right? Because um, what you're feeling one moment changes the next constantly we're constantly changing and we constantly can reflect i think it's um it's not so much of being impulsive with your emotions and your words it's more of a um gaining a more a deeper familiarity with yourself and and then exactly. learning how to skillfully use that understanding of yourself in your relating with other people so I, I know some things might trigger me emotionally. So I, I, I know right off the bat, don't respond immediately. Take some time to sit with it. Let the emotions calm down. And now let's, let's uh, objectively and logically look at the situation. What do I hope to happen? What, it, like, and, and am I doing this in a manipulative way? Am I trying to you know, gain something that isn't honest? So I think, that's more of what I'm getting to. 
but it's also very interesting in kind of, like you said, having some kind of practice where you do just let it all out. And because sometimes what's inside of you, you don't even really know what it is because you're so used to covering it up with the social social norms and, and doing what you think is politically correct or should be said or should be done. So, yes, I don't mean to imply by what I said that that's Not what you were saying. Right. I was sort of riffing on it, I guess. No, it, um, it brought up a good point, though. Because that, yeah. that that needed to be said. I don't because that's not what I meant. Yeah, of course it didn't. It didn't sound like it either. And okay. the you know your question was what's the role of embodiment? In a certain sense, I think it's if you can't feel what's going on inside of you, then you're going to uh, be in a very interesting position. Um, as you say, uh, you might be driven by things that are going on inside of you that you're not aware of. Sure, uh, you might agree to things you don't want to agree to, and so on and so forth. So it's it's very vital foundational skill yeah. to be able to feel what's going on inside that uh, feel what's the, bo- the sensations of the body, including the emotional sensations. Mm-hmm. And th- my second point was that it can that can get out of hand if we confuse if we confuse that with, in a certain sense, if that's the way to always do it uh, in itself. And uh, as you said, it has to be nuanced uh, with all kinds of with the other aspects of of a person's being. Mm-hmm. Right, right, beautiful. I think I think we have covered so many different topics, like. That was an amazing, amazing uh, conversation. Thank you so much. Where can people find you? If it, I didn't mention it in the beginning, but you did. You go by the Guru Viking, which is really the most badass title I've ever seen. Um, and so t- tell us, wh- wh- where, where can we find you? Where, where's your podcast? Yeah, well, the yeah the, the podcast is called the Guru Viking Podcast, mm-hmm. and the website is guruviking.com, and then the you know the Instagram is Guru Viking. Guru Viking. Also, I'm uh, surprised yeah. that wasn't yeah. taken actually. Yeah, me too. Uh, yeah, so that's that's how you how you find me. I mean, most of what you're going to find there uh, is the podcast where I'm not doing much talking. I interview everyone else, and perhaps having listened to this, you can see why. Um, uh, we do it that way around, but also, uh, you know, there's also, I have a movement method called movement kind method, um, way of moving the body and using, uh, explorations, uh, there, which you can also find on that site. And there's also a link there to all the various events that Michaela and I teach together as well as, um, you know, in the pandemic, I've been running a free meditation club, mm. uh, Guru Viking meditation club, we call it. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, free at the moment because it's, uh, due to the pandemic and actually mostly when I teach meditation, it's free. Um, mm-hmm. but that's also available there. We meet regularly and uh, do meditation-related explorations. And that's over Zoom, or yeah, um, it's over Zoom. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Excellent, man. Thank you so much for being here. That was amazing. My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me.